Hello there, and welcome to the third of three podcasts, a three-part series that I'm doing where I am reading a part of my book, Still Standing, How I Overcame Guilt, Shame, Hopelessness, Devastating Loss, and Paralyzing Fear. If you have made your way to this podcast and haven't listened to the other two, you might want to go and do that. Although they are broken out where you could listen to them separately, not having listened to the prior, it might just kind of put things together more for you if you do that. In any case, this is the third one, and this is the part where I am going to start from when all hell broke loose. And it's kind of interesting if you look back on my journey, um, and I know that, as I've said before, I've only shared a little bit of it. I really overcame a lot and and made bad decisions and overcame those and, and did some, you know, some good things with some bad cards that were dealt me. Um, and life was going pretty well when I was remarried and we were finally figuring it out as a family, except for we had this one little hitch and it was Jamie. And I, I'm not putting all of the blame on her, but her path that she wound up taking was beyond devastating. And most of you know my story, but let me go ahead and start reading here from page 57 in the book Still Standing. All hell broke loose. As a young girl, Jamie was concerned with doing the right thing and tried to stay on my good side. She was studious and did her chores without complaining. Sean didn't like doing his chores and liked it much less when he was in trouble. Twice, Sean ran away from home. They were both very short trips. The first time he was four years old and he made it less than half a block before coming to his senses. The second time he was eight years old and this time he was serious. He spent a great deal of time letting me know he was packing up and that he was not coming back. He loaded up two department store shopping bags with nothing but toys. I gave him a flashlight and told him he would need it because it would be dark soon. His eyes got big, but he snatched it from my hand and stuffed it into one of the overflowing bags. He asked if he could take some food with him, but I gently told him he couldn't because the food was for people who lived with me in the house. Off he went down the hill of our cul-de-sac, making it a total of about four houses when one of his bags broke. Toys spilled out all over the sidewalk and onto the street. He was sitting on the sidewalk sobbing when I arrived to help him pack up his things and take him, and take him home. And to his surprise, back to being grounded. Jamie knew where her bread was buttered and had no intention of running away. That was until she was 15. I grounded her for something and in defiance, she took off without letting me know she was leaving. When I discovered she was gone, I was mad. But when it started to get dark, I was concerned. Jamie had recently switched schools, leaving behind all of her friends. She didn't have many new friends yet and I was not sure where to start. As night turned into early morning and Jamie had not returned, I started playing detective. Somehow I made my way through a phone maze I couldn't have retraced if I had to and located a guy who said he knew where Jamie was, but he didn't want to rat out his younger brother. This guy was a grown man with children, so I spent a few hours playing junior psychologist, appealing to his role as a parent. Finally, he agreed to help and we set up a sting operation. At 8 a.m., Jamie's dad and I pulled into a fast food parking lot to find a shocked Jamie sitting in the back of the guy's car. When Jamie was 14 or 15, she went to Bible camp and came back on fire for God. A week later, she was caught shoplifting with a friend. When I got the phone call from the mall, I was in shock and denial. Jamie wouldn't do such a thing. I raised her with integrity and honesty. She lived in a great home and didn't need anything. I thought it was the worst day of my life. 
which is almost comical, considering what, would, what we would endure in the coming years. Rich and I reluctantly allowed Jamie to go with a church youth group to a shady area of Tacoma, which is south of Seattle, for a church outreach program. We lived on the east side of Lake Washington from Seattle and what seemed like a world away from Tacoma. The program took place in the late evening and I was nervous. So I convinced Rich that we should take her to the location ourselves and sat across the street in the car. We did the same thing a year or so prior when she and her cousin Shawnee went to a Hanson concert in broad daylight. Shortly after she started with the church outreach program, I found out Jamie had a boyfriend she met in outreach. I asked if she went, if he went to the youth group or a different one and was horrified to learn he wasn't in any youth group. He was one of the kids in attendance. The purpose of the outreach program was to reach at-risk youth in inner city. We learned that many of the kids who attended were in gangs, but the leaders of the group assured us there was security and that it was safe. As you can imagine, I didn't want my daughter anywhere near gang life, so we forbid her from continuing with the outreach program. For unknown reasons, Jamie became fascinated with the people she was supposed to be reaching out to and wound up doing everything she could to enter a world she knew nothing about. During the time Jamie was in the outreach program, she attended a basketball game in Seattle where she met and soon fell in love with a guy who was bad news. In the years that followed, I would spend a great deal of time and guilt over my decision to allow Jamie to participate in the youth group program. We tried everything we could to get Jamie away from Terry, but she was determined. Before she had a driver's license, she and her friend Megan took one of our cars out on a dark winter night and headed the 20 miles from our home to the central district of Seattle, returning with Terry and his cousin in tow. I still cannot imagine what she was thinking, knowing we were only out to dinner and would not be gone long enough for her to make the return trip before we got home. We knew immediately she had taken the car as we followed the tire tracks in the snow, dusting up our street, down the driveway, and into the garage. I screamed so loud at Jamie that Megan ran out the door and all the way home. Rich had to get up early for a business trip the next morning, so I told Jamie we were going to bed and I would discuss this further with her the next day. Sean was at a friend's that night, so I set the alarm and we went to bed. In the morning, I discovered I had unknowingly trapped Terry and his cousin in my house when I set the alarm. I was furious, swearing, swearing at this tall teenage kid and pointing my finger up in his face, warning him what I would do to him if, I, if he ever hurt my daughter. By the time Jamie was in junior high school, she had refused to go to school and quit the youth group, the youth group and sports. I became certified as a homeschool teacher and set about handling my duties. The first order of business was to do some placement testing. Jamie tested at college level in every subject except for math, and that score was high enough. She wasn't, to go, wasn't going for any more schooling of that report, and I was too weary to fight anymore. So I issue, issued her a high school diploma, and that was the end of my illustrious career as a homeschool teacher. It was time for Jamie to get a job and grow, grow up since that's what she thought she already was. Jamie was into hair and makeup, so we paid for her to go to a high-end cosmetology school, but after a few weeks, she decided it was not for her. Out the door she went, leaving behind all of the expensive tools and supplies and the non-refundable schooling. I was losing my daughter and had no idea how to get her back. If somebody had told me that their daughter was out of control by the age of 15, I would have thought they needed parenting classes. I wish there was a class to help me navigate the uncharted waters with Jamie. If only I could find that imaginary parenting manual. For Jamie's eighth birthday, mom, my mom and I took the kids to Disney World on a, and a cruise to the Bahamas. 
I secretly packed suitcases for Jamie and Sean and woke them up very early the next morning, telling them to hurry up and get ready because we were going to Disney World. The ship was docked, going through the preparations for setting sail while a big party took place on the upper deck. The Disney characters were out and Jamie and Sean held hands and danced in circles to the music. My heart was bursting, watching the pure joy on their little faces. Suddenly the music stopped and the captain announced over a loudspeaker that we needed to report to a specific place on the ship for a mandatory safety drill before the ship could depart. Based on what he said, we didn't have much time to get to our cabins, put on life jackets, and report to the designated spot. We raced toward the elevators but couldn't remember exactly how to get to our cabin. We'd only been there once and the ship was undergoing a renovation with parts of it being blocked off. It took us some time to make it to our cabin only to wonder, where are the life jackets? I pulled open a closet and about a dozen life jackets tumbled onto my head. I started to laugh and that made mom laugh. And before long, we were each lying on a bed holding our stomachs. As we laid there laughing, six-year-old Sean joined in. Jamie, on the other hand, was hopping mad. She was yelling at us to stop laughing and put on our life jackets and get to the safety meeting. Apparently, at eight years old, she was the only adult in the room. It wasn't entirely our fault, though. Aside from the ship undergoing construction, they had been foolish enough to serve the grown-ups Bahama Mama welcome drinks right before asking us to do something that serious. We were the last passengers to arrive, huffing and puffing, fumbling with our life jacket buckles, and trying not to laugh while Jamie gave us disapproving looks. What happened to that little girl? One day we were arguing over her relationship with Terry when Jamie said, so what you're saying is that I have to choose between Terry and my family? I replied, I guess that's what I'm saying. I was terrified of what her answer would be. Her eyes were dark and cold, and I swore I could see little horns poking through her hair when she said, then I choose him. Jamie was living with her dad by the age of 17 and didn't want much to do with me unless she needed something, which was often. A part of me was relieved I didn't have to deal with her daily, but I was still worried sick about Jamie. My heart would jump into my throat whenever the phone rang and it would sink when it did not ring. I was working in my home office late one morning when a strong feeling came over me. Something was wrong with Jamie. There was nothing tangible, but I couldn't shake the feeling. I finally picked up the phone and called Jamie's dad, but he said she was at her nanny job and everything was fine. I called Rich at his office and he tried to assure me I was worrying about nothing. I tried to ignore the feeling and get back to work, but I couldn't. I knew something was very wrong. So I started making calls to strangers as I had the day Jamie ran away. My detective skills panned out and I wound up on the phone with a man who was the father of a friend of Jamie's whom I had never met. After I told him who I was, I said desperately, Jamie's in trouble and I need your help. His reply shocked me. Yes, she is, and I know what she's done. I was too upset to yell, I told you so, at Jamie's dad or Rich. Instead, I asked her dad to pick me up so I could be with him when he retrieved Jamie from her nanny job. She walked toward the truck we were sitting in, and the moment she saw me, she knew the jig was up. We drove straight to the Seattle police station. The goal was for Jamie to turn herself in for the check fraud scam I had learned about. We, we stood with her, but made her go up to the counter and tell them what happened. The officer at the desk looked puzzled. Do you have a case number? I stepped in and explained there was no case number, but we were trying to get in front of this. The confused look on the officer's face had me wondering if he was about to pull out his police manual from behind the counter and look this one up. He explained there was no way to take someone into jail without an arrest or a warrant. I was trying to keep my daughter out of prison, but I had no idea how these things worked. 
Jamie was never arrested for her involvement in the check fraud scam since they were far more interested in the adults who ran the show than idiot 17-year-old girls who were putting themselves in jeopardy by cashing fake payroll checks using their personal identification. Jamie didn't seem phased by her near miss with serious jail time. Her life continued down the path of drama and chaos. Someone poured ketchup and mustard into the back seat of her car and scratched a not-so-nice word into the door. She went from job to job or no job at all. Jamie wore a police-monitoring ankle bracelet instead of going to jail. She appeared to have the worst luck, which was easier to believe than the fact that my daughter was on a freight train headed toward a brick wall. I will spare you all of the drama-filled details. You get the point. All hell had officially broken loose. Who was this person? who looked like my brilliant daughter, but acted nothing like her. She was supposed to be the first woman president. Jamie went to stay with my parents in Palm Springs, California, the summer after she turned 18. They all came back to Seattle together at the end of August. Jamie was returning home for good, and my parents had come for a visit. The Saturday of my parents' stay, Rich, my siblings, and their spouses and I had thrown a surprise 70th birthday party for Chips. Jamie was there, and she seemed much more like her old self. I was hopeful. Three days later, we got a very different surprise. I was on my way home from a breakfast meeting and called Rich. I mentioned I had been unable to sleep the night before and was super tired, but needed to stop at the grocery store for the ingredients for enchiladas and party supplies. Throughout Jamie and Sean's childhood, I had thrown cousin parties, where some or all their cousins would come over and play or have a sleepover. That night, the cousins were coming over to our house for a nostalgic cousin party and my infamous enchiladas. Now teenagers, they still thought cousin parties were cool. It was my parents' last night in town, so it was going to be an awesome night all around. Rich insisted that I should wait to get the groceries and instead go home and take a nap. I agreed and we hung up. A few minutes later, I pulled into the garage to see Rich's car in the stall next to mine. It flashed through my mind that when we spoke, he said I should go home and not come home. I had tried to convince him to take the day off and be there when the cousins arrived that afternoon, but he insisted he had to go to the office. When I saw his car, I thought he had decided to surprise me by staying home. Pretty clever, Rich, I thought, making me think you were at work when you were at home. As I opened my car door, Rich came out of the house and into the garage. The moment I saw his face, I knew there was no happy surprise waiting for me. There would be no cousin party, no enchiladas. He came toward me and shut my car door and said, he shot her, Val. He finally shot her. I knew who he was referring to. It was Terry. Rich steered me toward the passenger side of his car, saying, we need to get to the hospital. No, 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 I shouted over and over again. Rich attempted to usher me into his car, but I resisted. Is she alive? No matter how many times he assured me that Jamie was alive, I kept whimpering. Is she alive? Each time he told me she was, but that I needed to get into the car so we could get to the hospital. I wanted to get to the hospital too, but I was afraid to get into the car for fear this was not just a bad dream. It couldn't possibly be my reality. The safe life I worked so hard to create for my kids was far from one where people shot each other. Finally, I allowed Rich to pour me into the car and we headed for the hospital in Seattle about 30 minutes from our home. The drive felt like 30 hours. I needed to get to my baby, who had nearly bled to death while I tossed and turned in my bed. The surgery surgery was hours before, but Jamie had not woken up yet. I sat in ICU holding her hand and watching her chest rise and fall. 
There were tubes everywhere, including a breathing tube. Her face appeared swollen, but I couldn't recall the last time she looked so peaceful. The surgeon explained she was hit by a single bullet that entered through her backside, barely missing her pelvis and her tailbone. We would learn later on it barely missed her iliac vein, which would have caused her to bleed out before she made it to the operating room. They never located the bullet during emergency surgery, which confused me. So I asked the surgeon why they didn't find the bullet. He replied, we weren't trying to find the bullet. We were trying to save her life. He went on to say, abdominal gunshot wounds are fatal. We spent hours cauterizing vessels and veins. She's lucky to be alive. The row of nearly 50 staples extended from her breastbone to her pelvis, taking a slight turn around her belly button. My daughter had been filleted open like a fish. When Jamie woke up, her first words to me were, I'm sorry. I told her I didn't care about anything right then except for wanting her to get better. I told her we would get through this together. Late that night, Jamie was finally breathing on her own and was taken to x-ray to locate the bullet. It was lodged in her abdominal wall next to her belly button. In the ICU family room where I stayed alone that night, I laid there trying to wrap my head around the situation, but I couldn't. I thought about the time I stood screaming and threatening Terry when I found him in our home. He was wearing saggy jeans and a baggy coat and was probably carrying a gun. That night, I told him I would kill him if he ever hurt my daughter, and sitting in ICU is precisely what I wanted to do to him. I couldn't understand why Jamie kept choosing to be a part of that world. Where had I gone wrong? Was it the one time I slapped her? Perhaps if Rich had, had moved instead of us and she didn't have to switch schools, this never would have happened. If I wasn't a single mother all those years and worked so much, I could have prevented this. Maybe I should have never married Rich. The thoughts spinning around in my mind were the same ones that invaded my daily thoughts. I wondered how life could get any worse than it was at that moment. I learned during those first days in the hospital that this was not the first time Terry had abused Jamie. I suspected this was the case, but to hear it from her friends and the victim's advocate assigned to Jamie made me sick. My daughter was a strong-willed and a leader. She had never witnessed domestic violence. I have even been known to tell a guy or two, tongue-in-cheek, if you ever hit me, you better make it a good one because there won't be a second chance. Jamie was more headstrong than I am. She was the least likely person to be in an abusive relationship, or at least that's what I thought. Maybe I didn't know my daughter anymore. My mom's purse was stolen from the ICU family room. It happened a couple of hours into our hospital ordeal, adding to the stress my poor mother was already going through. To make matters worse, she had a feeling it was a young teenager who was the brother of one of Jamie's friends. I couldn't fathom this, so I was sure she was wrong. Who would come to visit someone who nearly died and then steal their grandmother's purse? My mom insisted something was off about the kid and questioned why he was wearing an oversized winter coat in the middle of August. I should have listened to the psychologist who once told me people are not as honest as I believed them to be. A few days later, camera footage at a convenience store showed the boy with the credit card passing himself off as Sandy. That day, my faith in humanity took a severe blow. I wanted to go back to believing in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy. I wanted to turn into an ostrich and bury my head in the sand, but that wasn't an option. I needed to be strong for Sean, Rich, my mom, and Jamie. I had to fix this, so I tightened up my Supermom cape, shifted into high gear, and tried to figure out what to do. Sean was just 16 years old when his sister was shot. He took one look at Jamie lying in her hospital bed and turned toward the wall. 
Sean placed his massive arm against it, cradled his head in the crook of his arm and sobbed. Then he left and didn't return to the hospital. He stayed a few days with his cousins and tried to pretend it never happened. Sean's high school football team was practicing for the upcoming season and everyone at the school knew about the shooting. It was in the news and word travels fast. Sean would tell me later that he was embarrassed his sister was a gangbanger wannabe. He knew what his parents' friends must be thinking about Jamie, our family, and about Sean. Each time someone asked him if he was okay, which was a lot of times, Sean would say he was fine and change the subject. His way of dealing with the trauma was to step it down and allow the anger to build. One of my many regrets would be not getting some professional help for Sean. When Jamie was out of the woods, they moved her to a room on the trauma recovery floor, registered under a fictitious name for security measures. For eight nights, Jamie laid in her hospital bed and I in the recliner chair that served as mine. It was hard as a rock and my body ached from trying to sleep on it, but there wasn't much sleep that long week anyway. The room was large with enough room for both beds, but she insisted mine be butted right, right up against hers. Jamie had been distant for many months and rude and demanding in the hospital. She refused to talk about the night she was shot until one of those sleepless nights as we laid staring at the ceiling when Jamie asked, Mommy, will you pray with me? Finally, the moment I'd been waiting for, a sign that Jamie was coming back to me. We held hands in the dark, and I prayed my brains out. Afterward, Jamie told me what happened that night. She was hiding on one side of the duplex after Terry had arrived uninvited and assaulted Jamie and her friend. He left and returned with his friend and guns. They stood on the street, firing round after round into the duplex. It would be described by the detective on the case as, you wouldn't believe the number of bullet casings we found. Jamie was still alone on one side of the duplex when the gunfire erupted. Not being accustomed to gunfire, she didn't immediately drop to the ground or run for cover. Jamie was the only one shot that night. One lone bullet in a spray of bullets intended for anyone in their path hit my daughter. Once she realized she'd been shot, Jamie dialed 911 from her cell phone, went to the front of the house to read off the house numbers, and then laid down on the carpet to wait for help. It's still hard for me to speak or write about that moment without becoming emotional. I don't like the thought of Jamie lying there alone in a pool of her own blood. It wouldn't be the last time. As the EMT placed Jamie into the aid car, she asked him if she was going to die. He replied, not in my truck. That's the last thing she remembered about that night. While I would rather have been having about 5,000 different conversations with my daughter than this particular one, those few minutes were unexpected and treasured. They gave me hope that everything was going to be okay. Mommy was here with her supermom cape, and she was going to get her daughter back. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Jamie came to live with us after she was released from the hospital. For a month, I slept with her in her old room. She was afraid of the dark, so we slept with the lights on. One morning, I awoke to hear Jamie in the bathroom, so I got up to see if she needed help. It was a painful recovery, having the muscles of her abdomen sliced open. Yet I found her standing in the bathroom, dumping her pain pills into the toilet. I asked her why she would do that, and her reply was, I don't like the way they make me feel. It would turn out to be ironic, since it was opiates she was first addicted to, and it was that very prescription that started her addiction. I would need to buckle my seatbelt and strap down the shoulder harness, because my ride on the roller coaster from hell was about to get a lot worse. Over the next decade, Jamie's life would spin further out of control, and mine would spiral into darkness. I would ride that roller coaster painfully up one hill and screaming down the next. 
caught in a cycle of hope and devastating disappointment. The shooting ordeal was so surreal that it didn't occur to me until after she was released that my dad never showed up at the hospital or even sent flowers. That didn't upset me since it wasn't as if he had been there for me in years, but it did surprise me. The new relationship was mainly about football, but the season had started and my dad had not even called. It turned out he couldn't. He was in jail. And to this day, I have not heard a word from him. Through my brothers, I learned that my dad claimed he was innocent of the charge, one that I would rather not put into writing. He never allowed me to look him in the eye or to decide whether or not I believed him. Once again, I forgave him and let him go. Little did I know this cycle of connection, forgiveness, and then letting go of my dad was training for using the F word in unimaginable ways to, in, the, in the years to come. You will learn about the F word later and why you need to use it as much as possible. One evening, Jamie came upstairs with her bags in hand and announced she was going back to her dad's. I was upset and pleaded with her to stay. I told her she needed counseling and someone to help her get back on track. And, and, and. She said, I'm fine, Mom. I couldn't believe how nonchalant she was acting. She had been shot with a gun. I told her how scared I was and reminded her, but Jamie, you were shot. I know, Mom. I was the one who was shot, not you. With that, the girl who was afraid of the dark told me she loved me and walked out the door. I would learn later that she went immediately to the district attorney's office and recanted the testimony she had given them while in the hospital. I tried to get back to some semblance of normal, but there was a pending attempted murder trial and Jamie was right back on the same track she was before the shooting. I attended Sean's football games and wanted to be excited, but my mind drifted to Jamie. I would try to focus on the football game only to find myself watching the cheerleaders especially those that had been Jamie's friends. Jamie should have been a cheerleader. Rich was an executive and shareholder for a startup company that was struggling under the weight of a downturned economy. He and another executive were writing personal checks to keep the company going, to preserve stock, stock value for the other shareholders. The tech bubble burst, leaving our stock portfolio, which was our retirement fund, depleted. They finally sold off the company with zero profits. Our house was now upside down, and we needed to write the ship. So Rich went to work for a consulting company and was eventually invited to be part of a team on a long-term consulting engagement in Miami. So we sold our house and moved to Key Biscayne, Florida. It was a fantastic experience living on a tropical island near Miami. I spent mornings walking the white sandy beach, looking at the turquoise water and marveling at the never-ending sunny days. It was a far cry from the gloominess of the Seattle area, yet I longed for home. Sean came to live with us shortly after we moved to Key Biscayne, which warmed my heart, but he was only with us for less than a year before he returned to Seattle. We brought Jamie to visit a few times while we lived there, but each time I noticed how much she was changing. Rich was busy consulting, and any friends we had we met through his business. I was more than 3,000 miles and a day's travel from Sean, whose anger was building, and Jamie, who was crashing. I had forayed into the direct marketing business a few years prior and tried to keep that going in Florida. The fact was, I'm not that great at sales, and the leadership portion of the business was the only place I excelled. I wound up starting my own one-woman consulting company and went back to what I knew and was very good at, business operations and finance. I tried hard to be happy and positive, enjoy the experience in Florida, but I felt a bit lost the entire four years we lived there. The fact was, I was going to be lost wherever I was. During our time in the Miami area, Rich had partnered with a couple of guys and worked with some banks to help them through the housing market fiasco when those banks suddenly became property owners. Before long, the banks started to sell off their properties 
So Rich's business was concluding and it was time for us to leave Florida. We landed in the Palm Springs area of Southern California where my parents lived. Chips had undergone extensive open heart surgery several, several months prior. The operation was successful, but mentally he was declining. The dementia was likely caused by not wearing a helmet in his hockey years and accelerated by nearly seven hours in the heart-lung machine during surgery. It was heartbreaking to witness his decline and to be so helpless to stop it. We tried various things to help his brain, but nothing worked. My mom was exhausted and heartbroken while he slipped away mentally and physically. Rich and I helped out, but I would eventually add, not doing enough for chips or to help my mom to my ever-growing guilt list. Meanwhile, I continued to spend money I had no business spending and came to Jamie's rescue time and time again, much of it without Rich's agreement or even his knowledge. I paid car payments, insurance, traffic tickets, rent, groceries, and more. I reasoned with myself that I was protecting Rich. It didn't seem as if he liked Jamie anyway. I tried to balance two separate lives, but during those years, I would have chosen Jamie and her chaos over Rich. My marriage was in big trouble. Sean wouldn't speak to his sister and was mad that I was trying to help her. My family was falling apart. Still, all I wanted to do was save Jamie, even though I failed miserably at every turn. Nothing helped. There were periods when she was clean and we had hoped that life would somehow get back to normal. But down deep, I knew life would never be normal again. Our lives were forever changed. My thyroid issues caught up with me and after living years in constant state of stress and worry on high alert, I was diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. What that means is my metabolism button has nearly shut off and I fight constant weight gain, fatigue, and brain fog. Menopause joined the party and I was wiped out. My inability to save Jamie was excruciating. I was supposed to keep her from danger and ensure she would make good choices. Not in my wildest nightmares could I have imagined how far off track my life would stray from my dreams and goals. There seemed to be no way out. I was trapped living a life of hopelessness, lack of faith, fear, doubt, jealousy, depression, shame, and guilt. I had somehow been handed a life sentence and I was terrified. This couldn't possibly be my life. It was supposed to be amazing. I was a complete failure as a mother, a daughter, and a wife, as a human being. I had a dark cloud over my heart that was there 24 hours of every single day, no matter what kind of act I put on. For my siblings and friends, life seemed to be marching on in the natural order of things. Sure, they all have had their challenges, but none, of the, none to the magnitude I was experiencing. They had kids graduating from high school and college. Their children were on to careers and serious relationships. I attended niece and nephew weddings and celebrated the birth of their children. Everywhere I turned, life was happening. I felt as if I were watching a movie. I was in a bubble and could see what was going on around me, but I wasn't a part of it. I no longer fit in. I was confused and envious and felt guilty for not being as happy for other people as I should have been. I tried to figure out how to be a better person so the crap would stop hitting the fan, but nothing seemed, seemed to bring relief. With each beautiful event in the lives of family and friends, I became more depressed. It felt as if life was marching on without me. I didn't want to be the victim, and I didn't like people feeling sorry for me, so I tried to hide how I was feeling from everyone, including Rich. I walked around with a smile, going through the motions of life, but I was worried, confused, helpless, and depressed. I would hide in the walk-in closet with the door shut and sob until I was too exhausted to shed another tear. I was a good actress in those days, 
hiding my pain from those closest to me. But it wasn't going to be long before I had a breakdown. This actress was about to have her last curtain call. There had to be a way to stop feeling depressed and defeated, but I had no idea where to start, even if I could find the energy to take even one step forward. By the grace of God, I hit an all-time low, which turned out to be one of the best things that could have happened. I was standing in my kitchen when I blurted out to Rich, I don't want to be here anymore. It's too hard. Thank you for listening to the third episode of what I thought was going to be three, but it's going to turn out to be four because I've got a little bit more to share with you. On the next podcast episode, I'm actually going to share my journey to standing up and the first part of overcoming something really big. The biggest thing imaginable or unimaginable was about to happen. But this is such an important part of my story because I'm so thankful that I stood up before that life-altering event that would blow a permanent hole in my heart. While some of this part of my story is, is sad, I mean, I can't get around that. Life can be sad. I hope that you somehow find encouragement too, because we all go through stuff. We all go through sadness, and it's to varying degrees, and we don't need to compare but have hope that even if you're going through something much worse than I am or what seems to be not as much, it doesn't matter. It's your story and, and you can overcome, you can get stronger. You might not be able to completely repair all the scars. That's okay. I live with a permanent hole in my heart and I've got plenty of scars, but I also do live a life of happiness and joy and peace and hope and faith and all of the things I never thought I could ever get back. So stay tuned to the fourth and final episode of me sharing my book, Still Standing, how I overcame guilt, shame, hopelessness, devastating loss, and paralyzing fear. In the meantime, if you haven't already, feel free to join my Facebook group called the Trauma Disruptors because that's what we're doing. We are disrupting trauma. Find more resources and Everything about my exciting new courses and programs and things that we're doing in 2021 at ValerieSilvera.com. Wherever you are, I hope that you can feel me standing right there with you. <music>